You're listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian, and I'm here uh, for another interview in our interview series. And I'm pleased to introduce to you guys someone that uh, I think has been very helpful for me in terms of understanding the Bible and how Jesus is at the center of it, especially at the center of one of the strangest books of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And so I'm excited to talk with him today, excited for you guys to listen. We have Dr. Warren Gage. He's the president of Watermark Gospel, which is a ministry that is dedicated to demonstrating that Jesus is at the center of the scriptures, that he's part of every story in the scripture and that he is where all those stories and narratives converge. And uh, we're really glad to have you on, Dr. Gage, and uh, we're really glad that uh, you're here to talk with us. Well, it's an honor to be here, Brian. It's really good to meet you and, and become familiar with, with your podcast and to participate in it. So thank you for the invitation. I uh, first was introduced to your work uh, with a series of videos you did with Dr. Chip Bennett on the book of Revelation. And I found it to be very helpful in a lot of ways as I was studying Revelation for our college students. And I'm going to put the links to those videos in our show notes so people can check it out. But it Let was, me just say, though, that those are only half done. We've basically done the hermeneutical background. Yeah. And we've gone through, I think, two chapters. We started with chapter 12. Right. And then we did chapter one. But we're going to be going through the rest of them, probably about the same amount of material. But it'll take a while. Well, that's great to hear. And I, I'm glad to hear that because I saw the part one, part two, and part eight and all that stuff. And I, and I was wondering if you guys were going to continue uh -huh. it. But if you guys haven't checked it out, you can check out our show notes. We'll have the links to those. And uh, they're really, really helpful. And uh, the book of Revelation, you know, I, as I was scouring the commentaries, it seemed like there were as many perspectives on it as there were commentaries. So <laughs> it's, a, it's quite a book that I think people are intimidated by, maybe even scared by, because it's got dragons and prostitutes and bowls of wrath and all these types of things. And uh, so I'm, I'm curious for you personally, how did you get interested in Revelation? What made it the focus of some of your studies? You know, uh, my best friend uh, after seminary um, was Greg Beal. We spent a couple of years um, talking about hermeneutics and everything. And a number of us that were graduating from Dallas Seminary in the mid-70s um, felt that the, the way that the traditional interpretation, the American traditional interpretation of Revelation was really not quite terribly satisfying. It seemed to be more a context of expositing it in light of current events, and those are no longer that current. And so uh, a number of us, uh, particularly those who uh, had identified as Reformed in the way that we uh, approached soteriology, uh, felt that there was an, a need for a, a new hermeneutical understanding of that book. Now, at the time, uh, because of our training, we were very interested in what was called apocalyptic literature. I think that's really a misnomer now. That's not a recognized genre, but we thought it was. And, the, you know, a, a genre should really give clues to interpreting the book. And that's just simply a descriptive uh, aspect of it that doesn't work in a generic sense. And so, but that explains why Greg, when he went to Cambridge, uh, wrote his dissertation on, on Daniel. Primarily, his whole focus is Daniel. His uh, PhD at Cambridge was on the use of Daniel in Revelation. And so he's looking for a model 
that comprehended the whole book. And I think a number of us were doing that. Uh, and there were a number of studies out uh, that were suggesting a different book, one or the other books of the Old Testament, as the template, really, for, for Revelation. Revelation, you have to have a context for it in order to understand it. You can't interpret it in terms of the, uh, the newspaper. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, so, so anyway, um, so what happened was he suggested Daniel was associated with Revelation at, in, our, in our background, our theological background. And I think the conclusion is, you know, after looking at his work, and I, I, I knew him uh, very well, um, Daniel is, a, is alluded to many times, and there are many things in the Revelation that follow that sequence. But that wasn't the only book. In fact, I think, uh, as I recall, Greg did write a book about a number of different models that were suggested. One, uh, I think, Farrer suggested Isaiah was a model hmm. for the book ending in an apocalypse. Remember, the Isaianic apocalypse. Fogelgesang, um, I think, offered Ezekiel as the yes. template. You know, you've got Gog and Magog, then you've got a big temple at the end that some have identified with the you know, new heavens and the new earth. I'm not, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. But anyway, you can see that the sequencing there, ending in, ending in, a, ba in, in a great battle, um, and the dry, from the dry bones on, that seems to track a sequence, basically. So that was suggested, and I thought there's really quite a bit of merit there um, as you look at, as you consider the book. But there was one book that we were all overlooking and we shouldn't have, and um, so all these dissertations were being written by different people. Greg wrote his on the use of Daniel in Revelation. And so what happened to me was um, I was in a classical program and I was being trained in, in Hellenistic literature in the first century, which basically brings in, you know, all of the, the, the dramatists, um, the tragedians, Euripides, Sophocles, Aeschylus, the comedian, Aristophanes, which is tremendously significant. The, the old comedy, uh, Aristophanes. Um, there are only about 11 of his plays that are extant, but that, I think, is one of the biggest keys to the genre. That is the biggest key to the genre of Revelation, as it turned out. But um, studying the philosophers, um, Plato and Aristotle, and Plato, of course, writes about Socrates, Xenophon, uh, all that literature, uh, Ovid, my favorite, I think, was probably Plutarch. And I wanted to write my dissertation on Plutarch. I, I, uh, I wrote my master's thesis on his life of Lycurgus. And what I noticed in writing that was that the whole, that whole life of Lycurgus was written chiastically. Now, this was in the mid-90s when, when, uh, when I went through seminary, we heard about chiasm. Um, Albrecht Bengel, Joachim Albrecht Bengel had identified couplets that were chiastic, and there were some suggesting paragraphs were chiastic. Well, when I got to, uh, by the time I got to grad school, uh, after seminary, I was seeing that this whole life of Plutarch was chiastic. It was about 40 pages of text. A and chiasm would away. be like a parallel a structure? Right. Yeah, it's that typically there's a pivot. You can think of it, I think a good illustration is you throw a rock in a lake. That point of impact is the pivot of the chiasm, and then these 
concentric rings that move further and further mm. out. And I think visually that gives you the idea. It's, you know, A, B, C, B prime, A prime. So it, visually, when you depict it, it can be pyramidal, but that can, of course, pivot. And there are different ways that it's used so that you could display it visually. You can look at it concentrically, too, um, like a helix, which is its mathematical structure. So uh, I was stunned because Plutarch was, it's very easy to tell what he was doing. And that reinterpreted that whole life because you can see the, the chiastic pattern allows you to read a book organically. You're thinking about, there, there is no one context. You don't read it and then not think about how it is embedded in the entire narrative. And I think in, in the West, we think we read linearly and logically. And so we, we only think you can read from left to right, which you, you know, obviously there are many languages, most of them east of Jerusalem that read uh, right to left. And uh, Egyptians read up and down and right and left or left and right. So there are all kinds of ways of visualizing how to read. The chiasm is, is not the way that the West thinks of reading. We, we, we'll read like the birth narrative and um, miss the fact. And when we're done with the birth narrative, we're on to some other narrative. You know, the, the flight to Egypt or Jesus in the temple at 12, if you're in Luke, and then, you know, the, the beginning of the ministry on down to the death and resurrection as kind of a gospel framework. And so we read one story. We're not really thinking about the one behind or the one, bef one before um, in, in reading it. And so we miss a lot of it because those books are chiastic. That means the birth narrative is anticipating the resurrection narrative. Hmm. And that's very clear. We wouldn't ordinarily think of that, for example, but in the birth narrative of Jesus, the way that the father designed the circumstances of Jesus' birth, the narrative's told primarily through the eyes of Mary and Joseph, right? A Mary and Joseph, Joseph of Bethlehem, Mary of Nazareth. The resurrection narrative, which is a new birth um, of kind, actually that's the new birth in Revelation 12, but that's told primarily by the gospel writers through the eyes of another Mary and Joseph, Mary Magdalene and Joseph of Arimathea. And in the ancient world, and moderns dismiss that coincidence of names. Everybody was Mary back in the day. Um, but in the Bible, there's this principle of nomen is omen. The name has prophetic value. And we Westerners are often oblivious to that. So um, the the Mary takes the infant Jesus, his body, and wraps it tightly in linen bands, you see, to, uh, for swaddling bands. Uh, the custom of giving comfort to the baby that has come from a uh, tightly enclosed womb. And at the end, Joseph, at the resurrection narrative, Joseph is wrapping the same body, only the adult Jesus, mm. in linen bands uh, tightly. And... Uh, so he, he begins his life and ends his life in a mummiform way. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so those then, little details actually figure in to a bigger picture massively. if you see the whole thing. So, exactly. But we don't, my point is, we don't read it in context. So it goes further than that. They take him and they're in a stable. So there is a, they're looking for something that will imitate a crib. But the only thing handy in the stable is a manger, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's laid in a manger, which is an odd place to lay the baby. Um, 
And, but a manger in Israel is a hollowed out block of limestone. It's not this little cute triangular lit, or, or wooden box. In Europe, where our ancestors, many of them came from, that's how, that's how a manger was conceived. But in Israel, they're far more practical. If you go to Megiddo, if you Google mangers of Megiddo, you'll see these there, little uh, blocks, rectangular blocks of limestone hollowed out. So the visual effect of, and the visual of that is important because the sign that was given to the shepherds was, you'll see the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Well, all babies are wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's not the distinguishing element. The distinguishing element, that just means he's a newborn. The distinguishing element is he's lying in a manger. Well, if you can imagine a, a hollowed out block of limestone imitates uh, an ossuary, hmm. which again is death. Yeah. And the mummiform infant lying in that stone box looks like uh, a, a child burial. So the idea is he, he has all of the aspects and accidents of, of death in his, in his visual appearance, his iconic appearance. But he's alive. See, he's breathing. And, you know, they will be able to see that he is alive. But that's anticipating that... There will come a time when he will be laid in a rock-hewn tomb. Um, and so Luke is very careful to tell us that the sarcophagus that he was laid in, the, the, the tomb that he was laid in, was rock-hewn. It's cut out of rock, just like the manger. And that will become the distinguishing sign. So um, the ones who are appointed to be shepherds in Israel, John and Peter, will run and they will see the sign of the shepherds. That's their restoration story. John has his restoration story at Tiberius. Remember, uh, Peter, do you love me the three times? But, but there are other restoration stories. And the, the shepherds run into the city to see the sign yeah. of the child. And they would have seen the child in the manger. And their first, at first glance, you think the child is dead. But then you see he is alive. And that's a surprise. Well, it's the same. The shepherds run circumstantially to the tomb, Peter and John. And they need a restoration because they've both uh, abandoned the Savior, Peter and his denials. But they, they're given the sign of the shepherds, which is magnificent. It's very artfully done. Now, the, the manger is odd for another reason, because it's not functioning just as a crib. A manger, the French manger, is to be hungry. It's a place of feeding, right? Yeah. So the manger is where the animals would feed. Well... This one who is in the place of feeding, where the food is laid, is the one who will become the bread of life. Hmm. You see? That's, yeah. I mean, even that little nuance is there. And the tomb that is carved out of rock, Luke tells us specifically, it com he comes forth from a, a tomb where no man has laid. And that's the language of uh, sexuality. I mean, it's not intended that way, but ironically and linguistically, there is a connection there. So who can come forth from a virgin tomb? You hmm. see, the one who came yeah. forth from a virgin womb. So there's, there's an art and a beauty to this. So what happens is the very first story of the nativity of Jesus is proclaiming the gospel. In fact, there is a star in the sky, remember, that was prophesied yeah. as early as J is, uh, numbers, a star will be seen in Jacob. And um, Daniel had been to the east, 
and uh, he was numbered among the Magoi. And so they were astronomers seeing signs in the heavens and these Eastern folk, strangers to Israel, uh, had recognized that star and its uniqueness as portending the birth of the king. So they come uh, from the East, these Gentiles, Announce, that announce, in itself announces the Messianic Age, because the Messianic Age is when the, gen, the gospel would go to the Gentiles. So they come to Jerusalem. That means it's clear they had the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah told them to bring gold and frankincense, Isaiah 60. Uh, you bring gold and frankincense as a tribute to the king, whereas he was born king of the Jews. So they come uh, bringing gold and frankincense, but they also bring myrrh. And myrrh is not one of the gifts that Isaiah names, but myrrh is a burial spice. Jesus will be buried with myrrh, you remember. Yeah. Um, Nicodemus will bring myrrh and aloes. And so that would seem to be a very inappropriate gift, but they had understood the gospel. That's why they're there. They know, they, having Isaiah 60, they also have Isaiah 53, and they were reading it carefully enough to know that the one who was going to be king in Israel would die for them. They understood the gospel completely. The wise you can men tell did? The, the wise men. You could, yeah. So the they, you think men. that they knew that he was going to be crucified? And they had, they were, I, they, were, they brought the gifts that Isaiah told them to bring, gold and frankincense, right? Right. But they also added to that myrrh. And why would they do that? Well, because if you have Isaiah 60, you're going to have Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 right. very clearly tells us that he's going to be crucified. They read it, or he's going to be killed. That's the idea. He's going to, he's going to suffer death, and then he will prolong his days after that in Isaiah 53. So they'd put all that together. These are believing men. The Spirit was speaking to them and, and you know, all of that. So, so they, they came. Here is the, the nations are bringing tribute. You know, so they knew this even though the other... apostles didn't really No, they understood it. that. No, there was, yeah, but they had a better understanding. Yeah, Matthew makes, makes that clear. Uh, so often the Gentiles understood these hmm. things, uh, and, and only the remnant in Israel did. Herod, of course, doesn't. So anyway, the, the wise men come, they give these gifts. and by So in his birth, he's given gifts of myrrh and frankincense. That will become useful providently. They're going to flee to Egypt that night, or no, 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 they, they flee to Egypt uh, after that. Is that right? I'm trying to think. No, I'm trying to remember. It's, yeah, it's after, it's after the wise men because Herod okay. is trying to yeah. kill them. So they flee to Egypt, and the gold and the frankincense of myrrh are highly desirable imports for a, a culture dedicated to death, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like Egypt was with the cult of the dead. So God was providing for their care, this poor family, but the Holy Family fled to Egypt. Um, and that was by these gifts, but that came from the faith and the supply of the Gentiles of faith. And now Egypt, which had been the land of bondage, was now the land of refuge, and Israel has become the new Egypt. Now that's important to Revelation. Herod is the new Pharaoh who hmm. will try to kill the male seed of Israel, right? right. You follow me? Yeah. So he's like a new Pharaoh, and here is Jesus like a new Moses, and he will be. It's part of the Mathean Moses typology. And so Jesus will have to flee Israel and will find refuge in Egypt. It reverses everything. It's, again, part of Matthew's 
mission to the to show that the gospel it goes to the Gentile as well. So he cites Hosea being fulfilled, not when Jesus comes out of Egypt back to Israel, but when Jesus escapes Israel to find refuge in Egypt. That's when out of Egypt have I called my son, but Egypt there stands for Israel. Israel has become the new Egypt, the land of bondage uh, to uh, the law and to the darkness and the slavery of thinking that the law is our means of justification, which is the way the New Testament is showing that. So it's oh, all man. turned upside down. But you see, in other words, my whole point in going, there are many more details like that, but my point is when we typically, Westerners, when we read the nativity narrative, we're not thinking of the rest of the Gospels. Is that making sense? Yeah. We're not reading it in light of the beginning and the ending. We're not reading in the same way. And that's, that's critical. That's, that's, that's not the way the first century people received the word of God. We say, as Protestants, we believe in a historical, grammatical reading of the text. And I don't think there's anyone that does a better job of grammatical analysis of the text. But the problem of Protestantism is we do not read it historically. We're not reading it in light of how they wrote how they use symbols and types, the emphasis on beauty, all of that uh, we miss because we're not reading it historically. We're reading it as moderns. We're reading the Bible like moderns do, not like people trained in the Greek uh, culture and Hellenism would have read it. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so that's that ties into Revelation because if we don't have that background and understanding, we're going to miss a lot of what Revelation is trying to describe to us. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, so how what does happened, that come into Revelation? Yeah. Well, um, where I left this narrative, or personal narrative, I, I observed that Plutarch was writing his whole lives. It's the lives of famous Greeks and Romans. So he's paralleling lives. And the ultimate type by which he's describing them is Socrates, who was considered the perfect man, you know, in that world. His soul was perfect virtue. And so the flaw the tragic flaw in everyone's life, he's paralleling Greeks and Romans, was some defect that you would not have discovered with Socrates. That's the idea. So he's writing around 120 or so AD. That's the world out of which the Bible comes. And I'm seeing major chiastic structures. And then I'm seeing that they're symbols and images. They're looking, they have a typology. Socrates is the, the model uh, mind and 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 an image of virtue and and um, he's comparing everybody to that overarching uh, archetype and I thought well that's the way the Bible is it's it's really looking at Christ is you know the the new Socrates and uh, and that's how they would have thought of it too and whether it's Old Testament or New Testament you compare these lives um, when you compare them, you see that Christ is either, if they're sinful, he's sinless. If they're heroic in some way, he's more heroic. So it's always a comparison. And that's the way that, that frame of reference is in there. You've got all these Greek cities in the Mediterranean. If you go and you visit them, you'll see some theater excavated, some large, you can think of, if you've been, many people have been to Caesarea and you see that fantastic theater complex. It's in all of these Hellenistic cities. You're constantly seeing tragedies and comedies. And that's, you know, the, the smiling mask and the frowning mask of the 
theater is the idea. You put the two together, that's epic. There's also lyric, but those are the genres. Those are the major movements of the human mind and emotion. And the gospels are writing, like Luke, for example, writes his gospel, his narrative account of Christ's ministry. It's very tragic. It ends in death and burial. But then there's a comic turn, and the comic turn is the resurrection, and then he continues his acts. That's Jesus, the acts of Jesus in the, New Test in, in the book of Acts of the Apostles. Jesus is conducting himself from the throne of heaven mm. and blessing his church. So you've got a comic, uh, you've got a tragic descent and a comic um, ascent. And in classical comedy, in co classical tragedy, they always end in death. So um, the Emmaus disciples, for example, had interpreted John's murder as tragic. He was a great prophet, but like all the other prophets, Jerusalem had killed, killed, killed him, or the Her Herod uh, Antipas had killed him. And so they were thinking, well, we've had another tragedy in the life of Jesus, but he was a great man. We'd hoped he'd been the redeemer of Israel, but uh, our leaders uh, uh, crucified him, arranged to have him crucified. And so they'd lost their hope. And they saw no comic ending to that. You see, um, comedy, tragedies end in death, comedies end, and you, it's not life, the opposite of death is a wedding, because a wedding is the affirmation of life and the promise of new life. It's a more powerful image as the contrary of death. And so um, almost all of your Aristophanic plays end in a wedding. And you know it's a comedy if, you're, if it ends in a wedding. There is, and so the, the, you put the two together and you have an epic, like the Iliad is the destruction of the city and then the long sea journey of Odysseus to found the new city, which is going to be Rome. You put those together, uh, that's the epic of Virgil. You've got Homer, he has the destruction of Troy and the long journey home to Ithaca. So you've got, you put those together, uh, one is tragic, one is comic, it follows sequentially, and that's the whole epic. Well, the epic of the gospels, of course, is, uh, and, the, and the whole Bible, is the tragedy that brings us to the death and burial of Jesus. The comic turn is the resurrection, and the end of it, what makes it comedic is the messianic wedding supper. You follow me? So yeah. in the first century, when they read the book of Revelation, they immediately understood that this is comedy in its formal sense. It's not slapstick, it's sitcom, it's the most, it's, it's wonderful. That's your happily ever after ending. You see, they, they understood that. So you've got all the storm and drawing, you've got all the drama of Revelation itself, Paul's judgments poured out on the earth and all this kind of fracas that's going on. But the ending of it is in the new heavens and the new earth where everything is renewed. There's no more curse, no more death. It's happily ever after the, the lamb and his bride. So that's the context. Now, the reason that's important is you've got to have the sequence. Suffering has to be followed by, gl by uh, glory, or you're not in a comic world. You're in a tragic world. And if you understand that suffering is followed by glory, it gives you hope. That's the basis of hope. Hmm. 
And the Emmaus disciples have lost their hope. It's another cycle of disappointment like John the Baptist. You can't have a dead Messiah. So Jesus instructs them, showing how all the passages in the Old Testament that spoke of his death end in the, in the description of his resurrection. And that meant it, there, there is a basis for comedy. So the, after Jesus announces that at the end of the gospel in Luke, uh, the apostles are filled with language of suffering and glory. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him. The sufferings of the present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will fall. You see, that becomes axiomatic to apostolic thinking. And it, makes, it should make us a people of tremendous hope. And if that's the case, and if we understand the genre of Revelation is comedy, classical comedy, that will end in a wedding where evil is destroyed and the bridal couple, the espousal couple, is happily ever after, then there is no reason to fear anything, much less death. And so the people of God ought to be the most hopeful of all people. And I notice that we Protestants, we talk about faith all the time, we talk about love all the time, we rarely talk about hope, and our generation is desperate for hope. That's a great word, it's, revelation. And said it, it, it's, it's, it, it is understood. The Hellenistic mind would have taken that. They were, they were seated in those theaters that we've all seen in the Roman ruins. They would have understood if Revelation had been a dramatic play, they would have understood it to be comedy. And that really helps us in interpreting it, all the details, because tr comedy, like tragedy, uses certain devices. There's certain figures of speech, certain tropes that you can... You can understand, and even though there are parts of it that seem very tragic, if you understand where it's going and how to interpret it within that genre, it recontextualizes how you're understanding those events that sound very tragic. So it's like uh, uh, one of my favorite teachers said, you don't have to eat the whole pudding to know it's vanilla, right? If you understand how genres work, uh, you can taste it and you know where it's going to go. There are only four stories. There are only four in the human imagination. Aristotle identified them. Comedy and tragedy are their primary stories, so they all have arcs, so you can predict which way it's going to end. So you can take a piece of a movie, um, you can take a piece of a movie and you can project, you know where it's going because you're recognizing the conventions that are being respected. Does that make sense? And it's the same, God in his grace has given us those categories and Revelation is one of those. It should be the book that ministers the most encouragement of any book in the New Testament. It is fantastically comedic in its character. Okay. So how do we understand the structure of Revelation? Now, you, you kind of showed that there would, there would have been this understanding of how to read these texts mm -hmm. in the Hellenistic world. And that understanding is the framework that John knew his readers would have as they're reading Revelation. And we're seeing mm -hmm. Jesus being the center of it all. How do we... Because I think most people... Are like I really haven't read Revelation. Maybe you know they've it's maybe they've scattered parts, but seeing it as a as a cohesive whole, how do we how do we see the forest before we get into the trees of how Revelation I unfolds before us? I that's the natural, and that's that's really a very insightful question that you're asking. Let's hold that for just a second. Let me finish a key part of this because we're talking about the Revelation and how it related to John, for example. John and Revelation are chiastically interwoven. All the major characters in Revelation appear in the gospel, and you can trace them. 
You can see that this unique language is used. They are consecutively connected. Revelation is written from the perspective of heaven. Um, the gospel is written from the perspective of earth, and they are interacting with each other. Angels are ascending and descending all the time. Vials of judgment are being poured out. It ends in a trial where uh, Jesus is condemned by Pilate on earth, but there is a great white throne on earth. Pilate writes, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, in mockery. In heaven, there is a writing on the thigh of Jesus, king of kings and lord of lords. So you can trace all of that out. They go consecutive, but they also are connected chiastically, which is the normal way literary, the literary structure. So there are all kinds of clues to the identifying the characters in Revelation embedded in the Gospel of John. They are two books, just like uh, Luke and Acts are really hmm. their two treatises. But John and Revelation are connected, very tight interweaving, and that's what I, I developed a lot of that in those uh, recordings with Chip, but I've got it all worked out. You know, just it's once you see it, it's overwhelming. But to your most recent question, which is really the next logical step where we should go, uh, what is the structure? I, I said, is it Daniel? Well, yes. Is it Ezekiel? Yes. Is it Isaiah? Yes. And so the question is, well, that we normally think of, well, is, it, is that the most prominent? What we want is some comprehensive template that takes us from the beginning of Revelation to the end. And with those others, you see some aspects of that, but you don't see the whole picture. But there is a book in the Old Testament that follows precisely, that anticipates every move in the book of Revelation. There is a book. And that's the book that we have overlooked. Why we've overlooked it, I don't know. Um, but once, because once you see it, I remember when I was writing my dissertation, I was, I was seeing that whole passages have been lifted out of that book and incorporated into Revelation. Um, so what is that book? Well, it's the first book of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. You remember the three parts, the Torah, right? The five books of Moses, the prophets and the writings, yeah. the Tanakh. The first book of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible is Joshua, and its Greek name is Yeshua. Okay, or it's mm. it's Jesus rather. So that's significant too. A prominent theme in the in the preaching of the fathers of the church was the sacred name of Jesus. Of all the people in the Old Testament, Brian, why was Jesus not named for Adam? Isn't he a new Adam? or a you know, last Adam, or Abraham, a new Abraham who leads us out of the city of destruction to seek the heavenly city, or a new Jacob, because he'll have 12 disciples and he's creating clearly a new tribal Israel, a new Israel, or Moses, he leads us out of the bondage to sin and death, doesn't he? Um, David, uh, Daniel, I mean, there are all these names that I would have thought that Jesus would carry his personal name, but the personal name that is given to Jesus is Joshua. Hmm. All right? Now, that should elevate the significance of that book. If heaven gave him that name, and both Mary and Joseph were separately told, you'll call his name Joshua, and the key is he will save his people from their sins. That's the explanation. Why is Joshua so prominent? Uh, 
in, in, uh, in that. In the New Testament, Rahab assumes an extraordinary prominence. She's only in two chapters of Joshua or the Old Testament, but she's in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. She is um, um, the hero, heroine of faith, the culminating hero of faith in Hebrews 11. We go down, you remember? Um, uh, there's First, there's uh, Abel, Enoch, Moses. Remember, you're going down through, you go, you know, you get through, or no, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Jacob. You go down, you go down serially, so you get to Moses. The next one you expect is going to be Joshua, and it's not, it's Rahab. Interesting. She is the culmination of the line of faith. Why is that? And in James, when he wants to give an example of saving faith, he names Abraham. He names Abraham. But then he says, likewise also Rahab. Right. So what in the world is he doing? How can he even name those two people in the same breath? That's shocking. And that's gospel. You follow me? He's giving Rahab's faith an equal dignity with Father Abraham. Now, why is he doing that? Why is the elephant? Why is the hero, the line of heroes in the faith, why does he forget, push Joshua aside and focus on Rahab as the culminating illustration? And then after that, he summarizes. Remember? You know, time would fail us to tell about all these other heroes. Yeah. See, so the climax is Rahab. And at the end of the book, he said, let us then go outside of the camp like Rahab went out of the camp. So Rahab has become a picture of the church and the preaching of the fathers, Rahab and her household delivered from Jericho was a picture of the church. It's all over the preaching of the fathers. And the sacred name of Joshua, he will save their people from their sins. So we, we have to rethink some of these categories. So let me, let me tell the story of Joshua a little bit. And now that everybody hopefully has that has revelation in mind. See if you can see some of these connections yourself, okay? Because remember, we said it needs to go from beginning to end clearly and follow sequentially in order, um, in order to be the, the primary template. And I'm suggesting that Daniel is important, Ezekiel is important, Isaiah, all these others are important, but the primary template for understanding the context of Revelation, the dramatic narrative follows precisely the account of Joshua and his battle at Jericho. So let's think about this for a minute. Remember that um, uh, the most evident thing is both of them are war scrolls. Uh, the account of the battle of Jericho, they are in the land Joshua's crossed the Jordan. He significantly takes 12 riverbed stones and makes a memorial on the um, west side, the cis side, cis Jordan, on, that, on the, the west side of Jordan, to celebrate the fact that they've entered into their inheritance. Moses could show them the land, but he couldn't take them across. And hmm. that's, that's an illustration of the gospel. The law can show you the promise of God but it takes a Joshua to take you into your inheritance. So all of that's ordained to, all of it preaches the gospel. So he pu- piles up these riverbed stones as a memorial to the 12 tribes of Israel on the side of the river. Then he's going to conduct a holy war. 
But the people are not prepared for holy war because Moses neglected circumcision. So in the wilderness, they had not, the men had not been circumcised, so they then are circumcised because it's the time of Passover. Um, and so they can't participate in Passover if they're uncircumcised. So you remember that story at Gilgal. And that's all of this. There's so many ways we could go with this and show the connections. But anyway, it's Gilgal where God rolls away their reproach. That means they're competent to wage a holy war. The city that stands in his way, he can't go around it. He has to take it as Jericho, that fortress city at the um, top of the Dead Sea and at the mouth of the Jordan. And so he has to take it. Well, Israel, they had, had the Battle of Rephidim, but Israel was not prepared for siege war, warfare. They didn't have weapons. They weren't trained military. They, uh, they were just a, a large company of people, but they were, not, they were not prepared to take this. They can't take it, really, naturally speaking. So, um, but he has to consider, how do I take this city? It's walled up against God to heaven. It's a wealthy city. We know from the sin of Achan that it has a lot of gold, it has silver, and it has a garment from Shinar, which is Babylon. Hmm. It's called a Babylonian garment, the things that he covets. So there's a commercial connection to Babylon. Anyway, and it's a wicked city. In that city, there dwells a very famous whore. Yeah. Now, I, I'm, you know, I've wrestled with using that word, but I've decided to use it, and we can talk about that later if you want, because it's very offensive, and I understand that, but I think the offense is necessary to show the desperation of her condition. Hmm. So, and she's identified with her scarlet. Remember? She will be yeah. identified that she puts around right. the a window. And so, um, and she is plying her trade. That's why the two spies can go into her house thinking no questions will be asked. Hmm. Uh, the purpose of that visit would have been assumed. But God has given her a remarkable faith that she's heard of from the Exodus and from what's happened to the kings across the Jordan. Anyway, it's a wicked city and um, walled up against heaven. And so how will they take it? The spies had concluded, remember, that at Kadesh Barnea, that there's no way to take them, these cities. So, so Joshua is contemplating the battle plan. And as he's contemplating the battle plan, um, he sees a stranger. And the stranger identifies him. He says, who are you? And he says, um, I'm the commander of the hosts of the Lord. Well, he knows that that's a divine name. So he bows down before him. Well, no, before that, he asks, are you for us or for our enemies? And the answer that comes is not what people expect. The answer is no. <laughs> why, why does he answer no? It's the gospel. Hmm. He's not partisan. Interesting. There is a family in Jericho that he's there to rescue. Hmm. It, you see, and there is a family in Israel that has no faith and will perish. Right, right. That's Achan. Yeah. Do you know who Achan was? Yeah, he's the one who committed the idolatry. But do you know who he was? 
He was that the Josh prince. Was... No, he's the prince royal. Hmm. The designated prince royal. He's descended from Zira, which goes back to the Tamar story. The first one who emerged, the child that presented with the arm, it got the scarlet cord. Same language is used of Rahab. He was given the right, legal right of firstborn, but then Perez came forth, remember? Yeah. And so the quarrel between them is who is entitled to the firstborn, but the one conventionally was Zira. And when they're separating out, differentiating out the tribes to find out who caused the disaster at Ai, it's the tribe of Judah that's taken, and then it's the clan of Zira down to Achan. So he's not just an ordinary Jewish warrior. They were not a kingdom at this time, but he was in the royal line because Jacob had given the scepter to Judah. You'd expect him to be the good figure. He's got yeah, lined he's up to be the royal good figure. Conventionally, he's... Yeah. But remember, the, the withdrawn hand. Remember that? The hand, but it was withdrawn. Yeah, yeah, That was yeah. the loss of the election. That same thing happened when, when uh, Joseph wanted his sons to be blessed, remember? And he right. put... Um, Manasseh ahead of uh, Ephraim and the withdrawn hand. Yeah. You had the withdrawn hand in the birth narrative. So so what happens is um, there is a family in Israel that will be cut off. There is a family in Jericho that will be grafted in. The natural branch is the regal branch, the royal branch. That will be cut off, grafted into the royal branch will be Rahab, because she will, uh, in the genealogy of Jesus, she marries into the line of Salmon, and then becomes the mother of Boaz, who is the mother of Obed, who is the mother of Jesse, who is the mother of David, or the father of David, the king. So she is an ancestral mother of that line. So the story of Rahab is the one who goes from a whore in an idle city to being a royal bride of the line of Christ. The scope of God's redemption is amazing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's, that's the that's scope incredible. of it. That's yeah. the whole idea. So, so Rahab, that's, that explains, I think, largely her prominence in the New Testament as a, in, in the role of faith. Now, let's get back to the, the interview with the commander of the hosts where we left the narrative. Um, the commander of the hosts of the Lord who came from heaven. Joshua is on his feet and removes his sandals because he's like Moses at Sinai. He recognizing that this is the one who was at Sinai who said the I am, right? Mm-hmm. His name is I am. And that's where he receives the battle plan. How is he to conduct this battle plan? So he has you know, what he has to do, he's already done some of this, but he has to prepare Israel for holy war. There has to be a repentance of the people of God before they can conduct this. The commander of the hosts of the Lord has come because the battle is about to commence. It's very important. So they're given this battle plan. Now, the battle plan is very unique. In the battle plan, there will be three cycles of seven. I see. All right. Yeah, like the three cycles in Revelation. It, that yeah, keep this ought to start triggering yeah, things yeah. for yeah. you. So yeah, there are three cycles, and the seventh becomes a new seven, 
and the seventh, the culminating seven becomes a new seven, series of seven. So they are told to walk around the city on seven successive days. Well, what is, what is that all about? I think the reason for that is God is showing them they can't take the city. <clears throat> only God, it, it can only be taken by grace, which is true. So they walk, they're going to walk around the city seven times. On the seventh time, on the seventh day, they're to walk around it seven times. See, so the seventh becomes seven more. Walk around the city seven times. At the conclusion of the seventh march around on the seventh day, the priests will sound seven trumpets. Hmm. Okay? And then all of Israel will shout. The Ark of the Covenant is named as being there. And then the city will fall. Follow me? Yeah, yeah. Now, it'll become more explicit, but let me, let me talk a little bit about the trumpet. The trumpet septenary is very important. The seven trumpets, that's the mark of holy war in Israel. You only, it only occurs in the Battle of Jericho and in Revelation, in the Bible. Okay. It, well, there's one other time, but I'll, I'll have to tell you about that in a minute. The, the other time that we know about the seven trumpets is from the Marshall Scroll in Qumran. And they each have names. There's the trumpet of the assembly and all kinds of, they each have a specific name. But they announce the judgment that's coming to Jericho. And so what happens is um, the seven trumpets are sounded. That's always the mark of, seven, of, of um, holy war. When Paul talks about the last days, he talks about the sounding of the last trumpet. That's an implicit reference to the trumpet septenary, which means that you can only have a partial preterism. Now, that's for another, another <laughs> time. But I think that's a significant clue about the nature of typology. The last trumpet is meaningful. It's the last of a series. You follow me? So there were seven trumpets announced in AD 70. There will be seven trumpets announced at the end of the age. Oh, okay. I, but see. Let's, I, I mean, we can get off on all these things, but yeah. I'm, I want to let me get back to the narrative again. So uh, they do that in the, the great city falls. Then um, now before that, I, I should have mentioned this before the, the battle, actually. Joshua had sent in two spies to witness the city. Yeah. All right. There's always two witnesses before God brings judgment. There was Noah and Enoch. There was Aaron and Moses. There, was, uh, there were the two angels in Sodom. In Egypt, there was Moses and Aaron. There was in the antediluvian world, there was Enoch and Noah. There are always two witnesses that are sent the law. To, Even the law requires two witnesses. Right. right. Because God respects due process, and his judgments have to be manifestly true. Hmm. So that's that's the two witnesses in Revelation or the two witnesses here are not circumstantial. The two witnesses have gone in and they have made a covenant with Rahab. You follow me? Yeah. Now, why is that important? Rahab is um, a Canaanite, which means she was cursed by Noah. Right. Gotcha. She's yeah. an Amorite, 
which means no, I mean, Moses said to Israel to do what with the Amorites? Wipe them out? Put them to death. Yeah. So she's cursed by Noah, condemned to death by Moses. How can there be any escape for her? She makes a covenant of life, and the covenant trumps the law and the curse. Hmm. You see? That's yeah. why the, the espousal covenant of Christ that we receive in our gospel invitation, that does away with, nullifies the law and the curse ancestrally and all of that. So she makes a covenant of peace with, because she delivers them from death. Um, and then because the king is seeking them to kill them, she delivers them. And then three days later, they are uh, restored to Yeshua on the other side of the Jordan. Does that sound interesting to you? On yeah. the third day, they are delivered yeah. from death. And she had covered them over with flax, the wooden stalks of the flax. Yeah. Was, which brings in together, it's like a shroud. They're, it's an emblematic death. They're under the condemnation of death, but they're emblematically being buried. And then she lowers them on her scarlet um, cord and... They hide for three days, remember, in the mountains. The Mount of the Temptation is right behind you. Uh, Karant, what is it? Quarantine uh, Mountain. And so, um, anyway, <coughs> pardon me. So, so uh, she has made a covenant with peace. So Israel is bound by that covenant, and Joshua must respect it. We're coming, coming back now to the battle of, of uh, Jericho. When the walls fall down, Israel can go into the city, and they're to put to death everyone. It's a city under the ban. And that, of course, brings in the Achan story, which we've talked about, but uh, tells us something that makes connections to the manifest of the wealth of, of another city that we're comparing it to. But before it can be burned on the tell, because it has to be burned, Joshua says, bring out the whore and her family. The covenant respected the door of Rahab's house. The door is the door of safety. Hmm. Outside is all death. Inside is safety. And that goes back to what? Well, there's a door in the ark. Outside is all death. Inside is safety. The door of Sodom, the door of Lot. Inside they will all be taken out. They won't all survive, but they will all be taken out of the wicked city. And inside is that salvation. Outside, they will all be consumed. The Passover door, the firstborn inside will be delivered, and outside um, they will perish in Exodus. Um, in the Exodus. The door of Rahab is the door of safety. And the culminating door, of course, is Christ. When he says, I am the door, he's invoking all of that. And we will be delivered like the people in the ark to a new heavens and a new earth. And like the door of Sodom, of Lot, we will be delivered from a fiery judgment. And like the door of the Passover, we are delivered from the bondage of sin and death. Uh, like the door of Rahab, it's, it's the same kind of delivered from the idolatry of the ancient city and from a, uh, a horrible background of defiance against God's holy law, which was the trade that she uh, engaged in, we will be delivered from that state of degradation under the curse and the law to being a royal bride um, 
to the uh, heir, the royal heir of uh, Judah. And so this is the so, background that's turning the mind of John as he's writing Revelation. This is yeah, kind of all, a, so, yeah, that and many other things. But I'm just I'm kind of right. bringing that forward. Why the door is so significant? Uh, that's picking up the two witnesses are picking up themes. Yeah, you see, I mean, you were to read it in that light. That's actually in the Bible. And the first century readers would have had all of that in mind, too, right. because they thought iconically, like the Eastern Church, you know, they thought visually, we don't do that. We think, you know, letters yeah. and things. But but anyway, back to the battle itself. So the so Rahab has to be rescued before the city can be burned. So that's that pr protects you from understanding this as a universalist gospel. It's not right. Salvation is partitive. The people that remain, Rahab wasn't the only prostitute uh, whore in Jericho, sure. certainly, but um, she is the one who is rescued and all the rest are destroyed in the judgment that comes. Now, let me tie some of those, those ideas together. You know, and then after that, Joshua will bring them into the land and they will subdue it. But that battle is really... The decisive moment in the preaching of the fathers, fathers of the church, they three of the primary themes were the sacred name of Joshua. When you read the account of the Battle of Jericho and the Septuagint, it is Jesus who hmm. is doing all of this stuff. I mean, it strikes you very differently, doesn't it? But we don't read the Septuagint in Greek. Uh, typically, but I mean, if you if you read it, it's striking. Jesus did this. Jesus did this. He's conducting that battle, and John is lifting language out of the uh, Jericho account in Revelation. So, um, I mean, it's striking, really, how that works. That was one of the major themes of the fathers: the sacred name of Jesus. Rahab is a type of the church. Was also a um, major theme. One of the five major themes, the, the, the emphasis upon Rahab. Hmm. And the third was the Battle of Jericho as a picture of the end of the world, the judgment at the end of time. Now, that's hmm. how the fathers understood it. And again, a, the, one of the problems in Protestantism is we don't read anything before 1517 or anything outside of the Reformation. And that's really unfortunate, nor do we ever read... Uh, we're not from, you know, our, our Greek scholars are not familiar with, for the most part, are not familiar with the Hellenistic literature. So, you know, we, we take this little tiny corpus of Greek and we master it and we parse it and we conjugate and decline it. You know, we do a great job, I think, syntactically. You know, our grammatical analysis, I think, is beyond compare. Mm -hmm. But our reading it historically it's misplaced, I think. So anyway, how does that compare then to the book of Revelation? Revelation opens with Jesus coming to John on Patmos, but he comes as the commander of the hosts of the Lord. He has a uh, sword coming out of his mouth like the commander had the sword uh, drawn when he is confronting uh, Joshua. He comes with a sword coming out of his mouth. He comes to John. He is about to engage imminently this great battle. Not remotely, not prophetically, you know, thousands of years later. But soon. He is imminently about yeah. to engage. In this. That's why he's come dressed for battle. Hmm. 
um, John falls at his feet like a dead man. So there he's in the posture of Joshua, right? And um, what does he do? He has instructions for the people of God. The letters to the seven churches have a context now. They are like Joshua preparing the, the men for holy war by the reinstitution so that they can properly observe Passover in a state of kosher, in a state of cleanliness. So the letters to the seven churches have that aspect to them. They're paranetic. There are many other functions for that. Um, we'll carry that out. We'll explain all of that in the series I'm doing with Chip, but we're taking a break for now. But anyway, we'll finish that off when we get to chapters two and three. But that's the purpose of it. It's the same as the purification of Israel after they'd come into the land. Preparing for a holy war. Well, what is, what is he fighting in Revelation? There is a wicked city walled up against God, Babylon. In that city, uh, it's a wealthy city. All of its treasures are itemized and listed for us. And it is a, uh, a wealthy city in which there is a famous whore. The most hideous figure in the whole Bible, drunk with the blood of the saints, dressed in scarlet, gussied up, linen and scarlet, riding a beast, you know, whatever that means, uh, which doesn't sound charming anyway, I guess we can say. Yeah. Um, it's a hideous picture. It's designed to show you um, how heaven sees her. And in fact, when John sees her, he gives us a clue. He says he... Uh, the Greek verb is thalmazo. Thalmazo is to wonder, to be marvel, to be. You can't speak. You're so shocked at something. Um, and John has used that word before. But anyway, uh, John can't speak when he sees her, and uh, he's startled. And that's a clue to her identity. Uh, if you can read a commentary that tells you who she is, and you're not startled, that ain't her. Hmm. That's a serious clue yeah. to her identity. And he says, you can't understand who she is unless you're given a wisdom from above. Here is the mind that has wisdom. Right? Yeah. Here is the mind that has wisdom. And he says she's had a relationship with seven kings. Five have fallen. One is not yet come, and the seventh has not yet come. See? And that echoes too, because when John sees the thing, the, the parallel to that in Revelation is chiastic. It's the woman at the well. You see that? So when he sees, when, when, uh, when John comes back, they've been buying bread in the city, when they come back, he says, the disciples... And he were startled. They couldn't speak. Here is Jesus speaking to a woman alone, a Samaritan woman. She's foreign, which no respecting rabbi would ever do, much less a Samaritan. She's foreign. And um, she's very likely, because she's coming at an unaccustomed hour, that means she can't keep respectable company. She's very likely a woman of ill repute. And here is Jesus conversing with her. And they just that sight is enough that they are stunned there because she has a hideous 
profile to them. But to Jesus, she is the promise of all the patriarchs who met their brides at a well. Yeah. She's a new Rebecca. She's a new Rachel. She's a new Zipporah. And that's the narrative, the way it's set up very elaborately. But anyway, he sees, he loves her, not because she's beautiful and pure like Rachel. This is a new Jacob. It's Jacob's well. He loves her because he sees what God will make of her Hmm. and that she has faith. Beautiful. And she's ashamed of her past when he asks her to bring her husband. And he knows he's prompting her to. She says, I have no husband. And he, she lies. And then he says, well, that's true. It's interesting about the Savior who so charitably interprets our blatant sin. He says, you've spoken truly in that, but you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. And the implication is she's met the seventh, who is her true husband. And that's the love that will satisfy her thirst. Wow. So it's a replay of Jacob seeing Rachel at the well of Haran, a foreign well, seeing his wife. Only she was beautiful and virginal. This woman is anything but that. But Jesus gives her all his heart. And the disciples can't, when they first see her, they are shocked. They can't believe what's going on here. You see, the, uh, that's part of the connection between the gospel and revelation. But it seems to me that's tied, seven, one, and one. Um, anyway, if, you, if you lack wisdom, ask of the Father and he'll give you that wisdom. And I think that's it. So what happens, that's suggesting very clearly that the whore of Babylon becomes the bride of Christ. Hmm. There's another from John parallel that is pretty striking in that way, and that is, and I haven't forgotten where we're going, So, but I think you wanted to cover some of this material, so I think we can do that. That's from the chiastic patterning in John. and Re- What happens after that, the woman goes back into the city and says, anyone who um, wants to meet this man that told me everything I know, anyone who's thirsty, let him come and meet this man, and they all go out. That that connects her to the Bride of Christ narrative at the end of Revelation. If anyone is thirsty, let him come. Remember the invitation. So, um, but anyway, um, so, that's the chiastic clue. There is a consecutive correspondence. The, the description of the, the attire of the poor of Babylon, she's wearing a scarlet robe, and she has a cup of loathsomeness. Hmm. An anti-communion, right? Yeah. There's only one other character in John's writings that has a scarlet robe uh, that's supposed to be a royal robe and has a cup of loathsomeness that he must drink, and that's the Savior. So if you are reformed, once you see that connection, that Jesus in the gospel is bearing the shame and the reproach of the whore of Babylon in Revelation, you know immediately who she must be if you understand your doctrine of definite atonement. He is not making it possible for her to be saved. He is taking her punishment upon himself. He is identifying with her when his kingdom is being mocked. Her her queenly rule is a mockery. So uh, 
Yeah, so then to complete the whole idea and bring it very quickly to a close, back to the narrative of Revelation, in, in 16, when the seventh trumpet, in fifth, is it 15, 16 when the tr seventh trumpet sounds? Is that right? Or is, it's earlier than that, I think, maybe 11 or something. But anyway, the seventh trumpet sounds in Jericho and all the company shout and the walls fall. The seventh trumpet that sounds in Revelation, all of heaven shouts, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And after that, it's announced great Babylon fell. Hmm. So it's the Jericho. And, but before it can be judged and burned on the tell, remember the tell arrangement, that's its destiny. It will be completely destroyed by fire. A command comes from heaven, Revelation 18.4, come out of her, my people. Does that right. echo anything? Yeah. The people that will inhabit the new Jerusalem are the people who have been rescued from Babylon. Hmm. Come out of her, my people. My people is from Hosea. Hosea was Joshua's first name. Hmm. Um, Moses changed it to Yehoshua, and after the vowel change in the 4th century BC, that becomes Yeshua. So that's the name we know him as. But his first name was Hoshua, Hosea. And Hosea is another book that's dedicated to the rescue of a whore. Wow, that's incredible. You will call, here's the backyard version of that. I don't know if you hear it, but anyway. Okay, maybe it's because of these, but... but um, Hosea is the holy prophet of God, who is a type of Christ, who is required to marry a woman of shame. Her children are not even her, not, they're not even his people. Remember the Loami? Yeah. He must adopt the children of harlotry. Well, the command in Revelation 18.4 is come out of her, my people. Hmm. And that's, that's Romans 15. Those who are not my people will become my people. They will come out of Babylon, and they will become the people, the blessed people, in the virginal New Jerusalem. So they will go from being a condemned and whorish people to becoming a royal bride. Same trajectory that we had in Revelation. Now, to complete the story very quickly, at the end of Revelation, we come to a river just like the Jordan, right? Yeah. And we receive our inheritance, but it's not 12 riverbed stones, it's 12 precious jewels. Stones, gemstones, but beautiful because they reflect the light and the prismatic. It's, they're not common, ordinary riverbed. The true Joshua builds a city of precious jewels and surmounted by a 12-gate city, bringing together the two communities of, of the Gentiles and the Jew and one, one people and one inheritance. And that's the culmination of the book of Revelation with the wedding, where these people that come out of the city are espoused to Christ himself. That's the end of Hebrews 13. Um, let us therefore go, go outside the camp. Remember that? Yeah. I'm taking on the reproach. That's, uh, we are Rahab, and, um, and the emblem of that is, 
is to magnify the tremendous grace of God that could take us and see, see through all of our ungodliness and could see in us a holy bride, a virginal bride who could restore our purity. That's the, that's the message of the book of Revelation in short. Whatever you've done, however you've been defiled by this world, by your choice or by someone else, whatever defilements you've been involved with, there is a Savior who can love you and see what you can be as you reflect his beauty, as, as he infuses you, imparts his purity and his virtue, his holiness, all of that as a gift, as a wedding gift, as the white robes that speak of the virtue of, of the bride, as he gives that to his beloved. So that is comedy indeed, and it certainly ends in that Aristophanic celebration. The, the wedding supper is not for a season, and then we go to a you know, reception or honeymoon. The wedding supper is eternal. We are eternally feasting on him, and he has furnished a marvelous table. That's amazing. And, I mean, I just, just thinking about the Joshua story, Rahab, how she... I, shows us our own state and that 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 call come out of babylon that is the that is the gospel yeah. that's the preaching of the gospel and he's saying even the whore if you come out of her if you come out of you know babylon you can be washed clean and and i because I, I, I always would read i i would read commentaries about the harlot and she's like it's a mock crucifixion she's wearing the scarlet and 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 it almost seems like there is a mockery like you were saying when mm -hmm. she's tied to the beast but then even that has another layer of she's still, Christ is the one who takes her shame away. And that the identification of their clothing shows that, that redemptive connection. That even, the, even, in, even her mocking of Christ, Christ loves her and brings redemption towards her and calls her out. That's, that's an amazing story. And then, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the bridal imagery, the feasting imagery, it's all there. And especially when you mentioned the connection to John. I mean, it's just, it's incredible to see how that's woven together. Yeah, there, there's so many connections. I'm just hitting the highlights yeah. to make an argument, to sustain a narrative. But I think the book of Joshua, the first book of the prophets, is the template, the major template of the narrative story. All the others, I'm not saying they aren't significant. They are because John and his genius is bringing all of this together. And so it's the culmination of all of written scripture showing that everything goes to him. The most amazing thing, though, Brian, is I think when he says you have to have wisdom to know who she is, that's the great mystery of the book. When you see her, you marvel. It's that Thalmazo, you can't speak. You're so shocked. The shock value is to see in the whore a picture of me. Mm. That's what I look like from the perspective of heaven, the holiness of heaven. That was me. By God's grace, it was me. And I'm being purified and led to a different destiny. All of grace, all of grace, but that is the great message. I mean, if she's here, she is drunk on the blood of the saints. How would Paul read that? Yeah, that was his life. I mean, that was his life. Is he? I mean, he. This is a world where where harlots can become holy. 
where thieves, like an Ephesian, can become almsgivers. Where we can love our enemies because they can become our friends. You see, it's a world of transitions where, where we become the opposite of, we are imaging creatures, I, not, no longer imaging the, the world and the flesh and the devil, but we will be imaging Christ himself. We will be filled with beauty. That implies so much about heaven, hmm. of asymptotic, ever-increasing joy and, and growth beautifully forever, all eternity. So, but... Uh, that picture is me. It's not external. The enemy is not external. The whore and the false prophet in the letters to the seven churches are in Pergamon and Thyatira. They're not external enemies. They're internal enemies. Hmm. You see? I mean, it's just, it's a totally different way. But to me, it's a way worthy of the Savior. Yeah. And it's filled with hope. It's inviting me to, it erases, it's like a cosmic eraser. It erases the horizons of this world that I knew. This, it untethers the sun from measuring time. You know, by the way, in Revelation, time goes backwards as well as forwards. It's fantastic. The way that it's written is magnificent. But it, it teaches you to imagine another world so you can dream again of another another realm that Christ reigns in. That's the invitation. Who isn't thirsty for that? And if anyone thirsts, let him come. That's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, man, I mean, we got to have you back on to unpack more of this. And I can't wait for you to finish that series with Chip. And again, for our listeners, yeah. if, if that was eye-opening for you, there's plenty more that came from. Again, we're going to link some of the videos that Dr. Gage has done on this, but Man, that, that is such a helpful way to view the depth and the riches of Revelation and that it is. I mean, how can you not see the connection with the Gospel of John? It's the same writer. It's the same spirit uh, weaving these things together. It's just the depths are endless. And uh, I love how evangelistic Revelation is. I mean, who would have thought, mm -hmm. you know, but it really is giving us in vivid imagery what the Gospel is all about. And that's an amazing thing. Dr. Gage, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we appreciate your time. And again, if you guys like this, again, I'm going to put the links in the show notes. And uh, we, uh, we definitely need to have you back. We appreciate all the time you've given us. And uh, for our listeners, make sure you read Revelation. You spend some time in it. Don't be afraid of it. Uh, if you will give it the patience it deserves, I think it'll uh, yield a lot of fruit for you. So we'll have another show for you guys next week. But thank you guys for tuning in this time. See you guys next time.